We'll be reading from Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to, look, to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know the background of Galatians. I'll review it very briefly. It's very early on in uh, Paul's ministry, and he has been on one missionary journey, and he has seen some churches established in a region called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he's left those churches, and in the meantime, some fellow believers who happened to be Jewish by way of background came and visited those churches and essentially told these churches that everything that Paul told them was absolutely right and true, except that he left some things out. And the things that he left out were that there were some behaviors, some Jewish behaviors that needed to be adopted in order for one to be saved. And those behaviors included things like what you ate and whether or not the men in the households were circumcised. And Paul is writing this letter in response to that kind of uh, teaching because the people in Galatia were being persuaded by it. And, and I said this at the outset, Paul's tone moderates ever so slightly, but Paul's cranky. I mean, cranky is, is, a, is a weak word for what Paul is really feeling in the relationship to this because Paul has made it clear that he got the gospel that he is preaching directly from the risen Lord Jesus himself. And he has said that anyone who tries to add anything to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ should be damned. Strong words, strong language. 
But I think it's the kind of language the church needs to hear today because we're so loosey-goosey about what somebody needs to believe. And what the Bible has to say is partially heard and, and then things get added to it and, and we have a tendency to think it's no big deal. Well, the text that we're going to look at today is really a watershed moment in the church in terms of what the church is going to believe. Now, I don't want to suggest that God has not been and will always be divinely in charge and in control of his church. He ha always has been and he always will be. But, but there have been moments in history where the church threatened to be wishy-washy. And this is one of those moments. And it was a critical moment because it was a moment where the leadership of, of Christ's church wasn't really sure where it was going to land. And, and Paul made it very, very clear where we needed to land because there were others who were getting a little bit wishy-washy. And so I really want us to understand how critical this was and, and, and where the church landed. It, it really really, really mattered. It really did. And, and the great irony is, is that all this discussion and all this dissension came about at a meal. Now, now we had second Sunday lunch, you know. Uh, we have second Sunday lunch every, every month on the second Sunday, and we get together and sit around these tables and we enjoy food and talk about different things, and sometimes the talk is productive and sometimes it's not, and, you know, all kinds of things take place there. But, but it was not uncommon for churches in, in Paul's day and in Peter's day to have kind of the same kinds of uh, conversations uh, with different people from different backgrounds and things, uh, you know, went a wide variety of, of ways. And, and the meal that I'm talking about today took place in a city called Antioch. Now, I'm going to introduce you to three cities today. Don't panic about this. It's not map work, and you really don't have to remember too much of it. But Antioch is a, a major city in Syria, and, and it is between Galatia, or Turkey, and Jerusalem. And so what I'm trying to say is that Antioch is a city that you would travel through if you were kind of going from the northwest to, to the southeast, uh, at least in the, in the Middle Eastern part of the world. And Paul traveled through there very often, and guys like Peter did as well. And so the meal that we're talking about today took place in this city called Antioch. The other thing I want to clarify for you is that in our versions today, there's a fellow named Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. So I'm just going to call him Peter because it clarifies and, and makes things easier and simpler. So the three cities that we're going to talk about this morning are, are Galatia, uh, up in the region where Paul is writing this letter to, Antioch, where this meal is taking place, and then Jerusalem down in the south, which is the capital of Israel, because in Jerusalem there is a big church that is, that is headed up by apostles, and most of the people, or a lot of the people who are in the Jerusalem church are Jewish by background. Go figure, they're in the capital of uh, Israel, so it's not surprising that they're Jewish by background. 
Now here's what's taken place. Paul has had a, a personal audience with the risen Lord Jesus. Peter, of course, had been a disciple of Jesus and had traveled with him for three years while Jesus was uh, involved in his earthly ministry. After Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, one of the things that happened to Peter was that he had a vision, a dream, if you will, one day. And in this dream and this vision, was about food. And, and it was about food because one of the questions that came along after Jesus left and the church was formed and people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus is how much of what we call the Old Testament law still has to be obeyed in order for us to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously the Jewish contingent asked that question a lot and, and it was of concern to them, but it was also concern for these Gentile converts who had come to faith in Christ. How much do they have to become Jewish in order to have a relationship with God through Christ? So Peter had this vision and in this vision, you can read about it in Acts, but uh, uh, we'll call it a sheet was lowered from heaven. And in this sheet was all kinds of food that traditionally were unclean for the Jewish component, okay? And, and Peter heard God's voice say, I want you to take this food and I want you to eat it. In other words, it was a sign and a symbol to Peter that, that that barrier between the Gentile group of people and the Jewish group of people didn't exist anymore. And so Peter went about his way and, and spent a lot of time with Gentile believers. And he ate with them, and you know what? He ate their food. And, and so, you know, every preacher in the world makes a, a joke about a BLT and all that kind of thing. Um, but, but he was eating food, whatever that food was, that traditionally for him had been ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament law. And he was whining and dining with Gentiles without any inhibition at all. And he enjoyed that freedom, and the Gentile believers enjoyed that freedom, and they enjoyed the reality that that barrier between groups was removed, and that that barrier between man and God didn't exist. In other words, what we had to do in relationship to food disappeared. That's the stage set. Let's look at 11 through 14 of our text, and this is what happened. But when Peter came to Antioch, Paul is speaking here, and he's writing to these Galatian believers who are enduring the same problem, you see, because they've been told by other Christians they need to go back under the food laws. When I saw Peter and came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, and I'll get back to Barnabas in a minute, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step 
with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the scene. Second Sunday of lunch in Antioch. It's exactly what's going on. James, who's the head of the church in Jerusalem, has sent some believers up to, up to Antioch just to check things out. Now, they, there's no indication and no scholar believes that they were sent up there as the Jewish police force to check out to find out what's going on in the church at Antioch in relationship to food. But they were Jewish, and in the church at Jerusalem, there were quite a few Pharisees who had come to faith in Christ, and some of those may have been the ones that came up to Antioch. Now, these were people who were Jewish by background, Israelite as well, but they were, they were religious Jews before they came to faith in Christ. And in their mind, they were still wrestling with what to do with food and circumcision and how much of the law to obtain. And so what happened was these Jews showed up to the church at Antioch and came to second Sunday lunch, and there was Peter eating with Gentiles and eating Gentile food. And Peter, I don't know what else to call it, had a terrible case of peer pressure. And he thought, these guys have come from what we'll call the mother church, you know, and these guys are well-educated, and, and they know stuff, and they read books with a lot of big words and no pictures, you know. And, and they're looking sideways at me because they're seeing me enjoy the food and the company of Gentiles. And so Peter withdrew, and he refused to eat with his brothers and sisters in Antioch, and he stopped eating their food. And, and there's indication very subtly that the Jewish people who had come up from Jerusalem kind of supported Peter's behavior. In other words, good job, Pete. That's probably the way you should respond in this situation. No indication that they said, well, now you're finally saved and, and now it's okay and, and all that other stuff. But, but Peter withdrew. And, and the Jews in Antioch and the Jews that had come up from Jerusalem kind of went to their side of the room as well. And Barnabas, who was a longtime traveling companion of Paul and a very dear friend and a brother in the gospel, was so compelled by what was going on that he withdrew as well. And, and Peter didn't know what else to do. But Paul did. And, and Paul went off. And, and Paul publicly called Peter out. Now, a lot of people want to make a big deal about the calling out. I, I, I think all of us can kind of be sympathetic, you see? Because here's, here's the reality. These guys aren't just, you know, second-tier Christians in the church. These guys are apostles. These are the big guns. Peter, Paul, guys like Barnabas who have been around Paul for a long time, and, and they're not sure what to do with this tension, you see? 
And, and the point of the exercise, what's laying on the table and why it's a watershed moment is you, you've got a mixed bag of Christians, Jew and Gentile, and they're trying to figure out, do I need to add anything to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the issue. And there are some saying yes, and there are some saying no, and there's Paul who's really wanting to pistol whip a bunch of people. And, and I'm being serious. Because he saw the importance of what was going on. Because if, if all of a sudden it's Jesus plus something, and we're going to hear Paul's argument here in a moment, it's a very, very big deal. And so the conclusion of this is Paul says to Peter, Peter, if you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, how can you possibly expect these Gentiles to live like Jews? Doesn't make any sense. Why would you try to bring them back under the law? Why would you try to give them Jesus plus something? And, and not that Peter started to preach that, but that was the inevitable result of his withdrawal. You see what I'm saying? Him moving from this side of the room to that side of the room, stopping eating this and, and, and only eating this, the, the automatic conclusion is we got to become Jewish because the apostle Peter who lived with Christ did and said what he did. So first 15 through 21 are Paul's argument about this. Now there's some debate about whether this is um, Paul's continuation of his talk to Peter that's being recorded for the Galatian church. Whether it is or isn't is unimportant. What we know is this primary message was for the Galatian church, but it was at a watershed moment in all the history. You see what I'm saying? And, and Peter and Paul are in the same place, and Peter says, or I'm sorry, Paul says, I'm going to begin to explain to you the role of the law and the gospel. His whole argument isn't here, but his starting place is here. So if you ever wanted to figure out how to put law and gospel together, this is a great place to start, okay? It's not everything will get to everything as the book unfolds. Verse 15 sounds a little harsh. I'll try to explain it. It's a lot of cultural nuances. We ourselves, Paul continues, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, most of us in the room, not all of us, most of us in the room are Gentiles. And, um, and, and uh, so why are Jews called Jews and Gentiles sinners? Um, it, it's really pretty basic. The Jews, the, the Jewish people have always considered themselves, and God has called themselves, uh, called them this, God's people. And it is to this people that God has communicated himself to them, and he has given him his word in his law throughout all of history. And so they naturally feel, and rightfully so, that they've had a leg up on the rest of the world that didn't have that benefit, right? They, their whole role in life was to be a light to the Gentiles, but up to this point, they're just lousy sinners, okay? And, and uh, not the Jews consider themselves sinless, but there's a demarcation there. But verse 16 is really the key verse, and I want us to make sure that we understand this 
clearly. Even though we're Jews and not Gentiles, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. Okay, this is a hallmark verse for the Reformation. We're not going to go into Reformation history. Singularly unimportant, Paul's words to the Galatian church, and he says it three times, man is not justified by the works of the law, but rather he is justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's great things to hold on to. But the question is, what is justification? What does it mean to be justified? I am often feeling justified in not liking that person because of outward circumstances. So I feel justified in doing this or saying that or thinking this. That has absolutely nothing to do with the word that we're looking at here. Justification is a legal term. And the legal term goes something like this. An individual who is guilty and deserves punishment from an outside source that has the ability and the authority is declared just of the crime and punishment that they rightfully deserve. And the person who was once guilty is now innocent because of this outside source that has the ability and the authority, declares that which is wrong correct. Okay? So when Paul says, no one can be justified by the law, he is saying there is nothing outside in the law doing or not doing that can justify the guilty. The only thing that can justify the guilty is faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to explore all this in much greater depth, but this is his point, and he says it three times. No one can be justified by the works of the law. Now, for centuries, Gentiles have never understood the law. We're totally confused about it. I'm still confused by it. What is its place? How does it work? What is its role in, my, in the life of individuals in the past? What is the role of the, of the law today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? One thing that we know is that both Jews and Gentiles throughout history have shared our confusion about this. Because there were Jews who believed that doing certain things in the law was part of their justification. You see? And this is what was being imposed on the Galatian church. And this is what was threatening the church at Antioch. That works of the law play a role in one's justification. And if verse 16 isn't clear enough, Paul says it three times, no one has ever been justified by the works of the law. So we know one thing the law does not do is justify. 
So we're starting to narrow it down and so on and so forth. Okay, verse 17, we're going to pick up and move a little bit quicker. But if in our endeavor, oh no, so what happens is, okay, so what's the logical conclusion? If somebody is justified by faith in Christ and not by works, we'll just put it that way, then one could say, well, I've put my faith in Christ, therefore I can live any way I want. Because all restraint is removed, you see? All barriers, all rules, all that kind of stuff. And Paul, among all the people in the New Testament, anticipates people's questions better than anybody else. You know, so he's talking to these Galatians, and he's talking to these people in Antioch, and he thinks, I know what you're thinking. And that's what verse 17 is. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were found to be sinners, is Christ not then a servant of sin? That's the question I just posed. If we're saved by faith, then I've got faith and I can go do whatever I want. Paul just doesn't give a long theological argument. He simply says at the end of verse 17, certainly not. You know, theology, don't need it. Faith in Christ does not mean you can do whatever you want. Period. But you're also not justified by the law. Certainly not. That's Paul's argument. Then he continues. Now, before we go to verse 18 and 19, I want you to turn to the end of the chapter, verse 20 and 21. And, and I've also always mentioned that uh, Jewish thinking is circular, not linear. And, and I feel justified in doing this and taking us to these two verses, partly because they're the gr- part of the great sound bites in the book of Galatians. You know, we love verse 20. We think it's marvelous, but we kind of take it out of context a lot of times. Paul says, still speaking to these people, wrestling with this question, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Many of us have learned that verse from a long time. But but really and truly, if I pinned you down and said, so what does it mean? That'd be a little trickier or not, wouldn't it? Paul obviously was not on the hill outside Jerusalem, crucified physically with Christ. He hadn't died physically yet, but I have died with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. There's a great paradigm shift in the life of Paul. Now, Paul was a student of the Old Testament and what we call the Hebrew Bible, and and he had it memorized beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he had spent his entire life devoted to living according to the law and understanding it, teaching it to others, and persecuting those who didn't honor it. But Paul said, when Christ came along and my faith was placed in him, 
All that was past for me is gone. And it died. Not my knowledge of it, not the benefit that I received from it, but its rule control, it died. And it is Christ who lives in me. And then he makes this most telling point, and I hope that we get this if you get nothing else, and I recognize that this may seem Sunday School 101 to you, but by golly, in 2023, almost 24, we need this more than ever. If righteousness comes from the law, let's put it another way. If righteousness, if justification comes from Jesus plus anything, Paul says it is nothing. If it is Jesus plus nothing, it is everything. But we don't want to just lock ourselves into what we call the Old Testament law, food laws and circumcisions and sacrifices and honoring the Big Ten, you know. Uh, the world is filled with people who believe that if X number of their percentage of their dollars is given to a church, that adds to their justification. Baptism. There are churches out there that will tell you you got to be baptized a certain way with certain water in a certain place in order to be saved. There are those who will talk about food laws or honoring the Sabbath, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, in order to be justified. The, the, the works of the law go beyond our imaginings in order to justify ourselves. And Paul says, and this is the point we have to get, if righteousness comes through works or the law or adherence to anything, then Jesus died for no purpose. Now let that sink in. If anything is added to what Christ has done, it nullifies what he did. It means that his death was worthless. It is either everything or it is nothing. This is the watershed moment. And Paul is saying you cannot add anything to what the Lord Jesus has done for you, or he has done nothing. So there were choices that had to be made, you see. In Antioch, in Galatia, in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Council is just a couple of months away that you can read about in Acts chapter 15 where they debate this very issue. But Peter, Paul is saying, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 
And you're threatening to wipe away what Christ has done for you. Back to chapter 1, verse 4, he said, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. That's what it meant to die with Christ and leave the old world behind, you see. Now let's just very quickly look at verses 18 and 19 of our text. Paul's argument is, For if I rebuild what has been torn down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I go back looking for something that I have done to justify me, I become an even worse sinner, is what he's saying. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ or live to God. Now, I want to make this final point in conclusion because I think it's so important. Paul never says the law is bad. He never once says that. You see, this is sort of the way we're not done with our complete picture of the law yet. The, when, before the law came in the scriptures, all men lived under sin. But they were comparatively ignorant of their sin toward God. They had no real clear picture of the righteousness of God the holiness, the grandeur, the, the expanse of God, the, the, the universe that he ruled. But all men were still under sin. When the law came, man was no, no longer ignorant of the grandeur and the glory and the righteousness of the God who created them. And it was to drive them to him to say, I need a way of escape. How will you provide it? With Christ and faith in him, the law has been completed, not just fulfilled in the sense that he did the checkbox of the law. The law had served its complete and full purpose and the freedom of the believer to now live in faith of Christ existed. Still aware of sin, but justified, you see. Fully culpable, but recognition that he was the way that God had been pointing toward throughout all of human history. So here we are, Christmas. And we're celebrating the incarnation. The, the, the culmination of God's plan, the very thing that the law pointed toward, the very reason that man was aware of his sin, acknowledging that he needed to be justified was fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. But the world threatens to say, Jesus is fine, but you also need this. Paul, Paul condemns that. I can't say it strongly enough. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. 